All right, my friends, before we get into today's Live Inspired podcast, something cool that is happening more frequently going forward is that as I prepare to share my story on stages, I'm not known to that audience as a speaker. And I'm not known usually to that audience as an author. Instead, a whole lot of the ladies and gentlemen in the room are already following me and our work through the Live Inspired podcast. They're listening, in other words, to this voice right now through their own channels. Very cool. We've had more than a million downloads, as you know. It's a top 20 iTunes show, as you may know, which is very cool. But it also means that a whole lot of ladies and gentlemen are unaware of my number one national best-selling book. It's where I encapsulate in so many regards, the best of our story. It's called On Fire. It's a worthy read. It's been celebrated by Brene Brown and Dave Ramsey, Joe Buck, a whole lot of other luminaries who have talked about the impact of this book in their lives. It also has received more than 1,500 five-star reviews online that has very little to do with this guy's voice or the man who wrote it and everything to do with the reader with the impact in the reader's life and ultimately what it does for us professionally, what it does for us relationally, spiritually, relationally, and in every aspect of our life that actually matters. It's called On Fire. It is available. But rather than sending you to your nearby bookstore today, what I'm encouraging you to do right now is to let your fingers do the walking. Come on over to johnolearyinspires.com forward slash free. This is a gift. I want you to be able to check out the first two chapters of On Fire. So come on over to visit me right now at johnolearyinspires.com forward slash free. Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired Podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Well, hello, my friends. This is John O'Leary, and I'm so happy to have you here joining us in the Live Inspired Movement. Well, today is special on several levels. First is this. On this date, January 24th, and I won't mention the year, a little baby girl came into the world named Elizabeth Grace. Several years later, and maybe a lifetime of experiences later, my four kids have the honor of calling this person mom. And I have the opportunity and the great honor of calling her my wife of more than 15 years. So today, on the 24th, my friend, my wife, Beth, Happy birthday to you. I love you and I'm honored to be your partner in life. So that's one thing we're celebrating today, but we're not done there. This podcast is just starting. The second thing is this. We have the honor of interviewing the author and the illustrator of the soon to be published. That means you get a sneak peek at it today before anybody else, my friends. The book is titled, No Hard Feelings, The Secret Power of Embracing Emotion at Work. Liz Fosslein is the co-author and the illustrator of it, And for the past three years, she's run workshops for leaders at Google, heard of them, Facebook. She's name dropping now Nike, among many, many, many others on how to create more inclusive cultures. Previously, Liz worked as an executive editor at Genius. And before that, she was an economic consultant at Analysis Group. Her writing and data visualization projects have appeared on CNN, The Economist, Financial Times, among many, many, many others. She's well accomplished. And maybe you should know this about Liz before I bring her on. 
every day for her starts with a plain bowl of Greek yogurt and a scoop of coca granola. So there she is in a nutshell, my friends. Today, we get to start our day with her. So buckle up. You're going to love this conversation. I invite you right now to grab your journals. I think today you're going to really need them. Prepare to take notes. Prepare to write. Get your Greek yogurt nearby because we'll be chatting today about what will make you better at work, in marriage, in friendships, and in life with Liz Fossling. Liz, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. Hi, thanks so much for having me. And from one Elizabeth to another, happy birthday. Oh, how wife. about that? I did not make the connection. <laughs> She's probably pounding Greek yogurt as we speak. <laughs> Woman of my heart. <laughs> Among other things, I hope on her birthday. But, but, but Liz, for those who have not yet had an opportunity to check out your book because it's not yet on the bookshelves, or maybe they're not even aware yet of your work, give us a snapshot of the work that you're doing today. Yeah, so the book really focuses on emotions and how to deal with them. And it's all about the central thesis is that we are emotional creatures regardless of circumstance. So this idea that you should check your feelings before you walk in the door of your office is actually biologically incorrect. You're always going to have emotions. And so since they're inevitable, we should probably learn how to understand them. And even in feelings that might be seen as hard, like envy or anger or sadness, there's often really useful information contained about it. So the book walks through when you feel something, what to do, and how to how to figure out if it's an important signal that you should listen to. Well, and we'll, we'll spend the vast majority of our time unpacking that book. I read it. I loved it. And one of the things, well, two things that I really loved about it. Number one is it's extremely practical. It's not, uh, it, it's very well researched, but it's also very actionable. So I love that. And the second thing I really liked about it, hope to hear a little bit more about it, were the pictures. Uh, you're an awesome illustrator. Oh, thanks. Yeah, the the illustrations are, there's a lot. I think there's about 170 throughout the whole book. And there, some of them illustrate the research concepts, but mm-hmm. generally they're supposed to kind of help the point of the book, which is that emotions shouldn't be scary. They're not necessarily something that you have to fight or like wrangle into submission. They're something you can treat with affection. And mm-hmm. once you start doing that, um, you'll you'll see you learn a lot from them. Well, I'm assuming a woman who writes about emotions and how to better navigate and manage them grew up in a very emotional house where there was a lot of tears and hugs and, and, and boisterous conversations. <laughs> I did not. The opposite. Um, so I'm an only child and my parents both immigrated to the U.S. from Northern Europe and are academics. My dad's a pathologist. Um, which he does autopsies as a doctor, and so just very scientific, mm. and I would say stoic. Yes. Um, so, so not not much emotion at all actually growing up. Well, we talked about that obviously before we went live, and I w- I really was surprised to hear your upbringing because in the manner in which you wrote the book, I really would have thought that you came out of this background. And the reality is it's almost the opposite. So talk briefly about your dad. What, what was he like uh, as a little girl being raised in San Francisco and then in Chicago? Yeah, so my dad is, like I said, very um, scientific. We, I remember one of my most vivid memories was we decided on a Saturday morning to cook to make cookies together. And he asked me what time and I said 10 a.m. and I was maybe seven. And I show up at the kitchen at 9.58 and my dad's standing there and he has all the 
utensils that we need lined up as if we're going to surgery. And he just looked at me, he's like, do you have the procedure manual? And I was like, <laughs> the recipe? Do you have the recipe? Um, so he definitely loved me a lot, but I think expressed it in, I'm guessing a lot of your listeners are familiar with someone like this where they just, they're not, you know, it's not like verbal expressions of love. It's more just like showing up, being there, being patient with you. Um, but again, not a lot of expression. How did that influence this little cookie maker as you grew, as you moved, <laughs> as you went through grade school and middle school and high school and into university eventually? Just not only the positive aspect of that, but also some of the, the drawbacks. Yeah, I would say the positive was that I really try to approach every situation with through like a lens of trying to be rational and like really understand everything, um, be it feelings, be it just a situation. And then the negative was definitely that I think implicit in just a lot of the cues that I was given was that you have emotion on one side and then you have rationality on the other side. And I think that's actually a false dichotomy. Emotions are sometimes extremely rational and therefore they can be really useful signals. So if someone does something and you're upset, you're upset because they did something that hurt you. And that's, you should still think of that as rational. Um, emotions are often like a response and we mm -hmm. develop them, you know, they're a product of evolution. It's important that some things feel bad so that we remember, you know, you know, don't put your, you know, I mean, on the Savannah, like if there's a, a lion charging towards you, you should feel fear. It's very yes. important that you feel fear in that situation. You mentioned that your dad and your mother came from Northern Europe. What country were they from? Uh, Norway. And then my mom's family is in Denmark and Germany. So my dad's from Norway. Did they meet in the U.S.? They met, uh, my dad was in medical school and my mom was in university in Heidelberg in Germany. And then they come over to the United States. Talk about your mom. Yeah, my mom is, she's a little more emotionally expressive, um, but she is, I would say, still very calm and reserved. Uh, she is a interpreter translator um, and studied language. Wow. Um, so she also has the procedural manual for chocolate chip cookies. <laughs> she she knows it's a recipe. <laughs> but, by but, but yes, yeah, yeah. But, but similarly, I think my parents are both organized and are at my house growing up where it was very quiet, uh, especially with me being the only child. What was one really cool thing that you learned about life or leadership or communicating or emotions from your mom? Um, my mom does a wonderful job of making sure that everyone feels comfortable in a room. Um, and so I think in her own kind of more quiet, reserved way, she's, I don't think she's like the extroverted person at the center of every conversation, but I've just seen when we have people over or when we did go to family or friend gatherings, she was just always moving around. And if there was someone who seemed left out, she just always managed to kind of gravitate towards them and bring them into the conversation. And I really love that. Um, I think it's such an important skill and can make all the difference in someone's experience. Uh, and, and even more than that, like how they feel in an institution or yeah. in, um, in a friend group or in a family. It's a big deal. When, when, when did you uh, realize what you wanted to be when you, when you finally grew up? At what age were you kind of getting clear, like, gosh, that, that's what I want to do. That's going to be my dream job. Oh, never, never. <laughs> You're still looking. Um, yeah, no, I would say probably in my mid-20s. Um, I think that's when I really 
realized that I wanted to do something creative. And that was what was a very important component of work to me was that I would have some level of interaction with the people uh, that my work affected. Um, and that was, I was so right after college, my first sort of big job was as a consultant. And there I worked really long hours, um, staring mostly at a computer screen, doing data analysis. And that, after a while, I think began to feel there just was something missing in that. Um, and I didn't really know what it was. But then later, when I thought about it more, it was this creativity. Again, it was like real deep personal connection where someone's responding to what you're doing. So you're not getting that at your current job. And it's a job that you landed out of college. It's a great job, but it's it's just not fulfilling. So uh, this is something I would imagine that many of our listeners either have dealt with, are dealing with, and you don't even need a job to deal with this. You you can be taking care of aging parents or you can be in retirement or you can be raising kids and not completely fulfilled. So I'm curious, as as you're struggling with this and looking for the next step, where did you turn and and what did you discover? Yeah, so for me, I eventually just burnt out of that job. And I think a lot of it was because I kept pushing myself and the more that I got stressed or anxious or if I ever had a flare up of, oh, I, you know, I I just feel really upset about something or there's something missing in this job, I would just suppress, suppress, suppress. Um, And that is not sustainable. So I turned, once I left that job, um, it was really scary, I think, especially there's times in life where you feel like there's a pretty clear path forward for you. And this Mm -hmm. job was one of those, you know, you maybe get a graduate degree and then continue on at the company. And so suddenly being like cast out of that, uh, I think that's an experience a lot of people go through where what you thought was going to happen suddenly isn't going to happen anymore. And what do you do? Um, And for me, it was a lot of introspection. And I started reading a ton of psychology, really trying to figure out what was missing in the job, but also what could I have been doing better on my end? And I think the most valuable thing that I learned was you just, you, suppression is not the answer. Um, There are ways that you can help yourself de-stress. A lot of people use exercise, but generally I think that if you're experiencing a lot of anxiety, if there's just this constant nagging feeling that something's wrong, you need to really sit down and understand like, what is the need driving that? And maybe it's that you need to take more time for yourself. Maybe it's that you need a sabbatical. Maybe you need a new job. Maybe mm-hmm. um, there's, you know, there's a lot of different things that can be. But if you don't process those emotions, you'll never be able to, to to understand what you can do to make them go away or to make yourself feel better. Well, it's, it's ironic. You begin your book uh, talking about the CEO for Starbucks, and yeah. I, I'd never heard the story before. I knew that he went away for a while, and then then I knew that he came back after the the recession. But I never had heard what happened in that first meeting in front of his team again. So this great leader of a great organization stands in front of the team, and I'll let you take it from there. Yeah, so Howard Schultz, uh, he didn't found Starbucks, but he bought it when it was very, very small and then let it just explosive growth. Um, And he stepped down kind of around 2000 and and turned the ring over to a few other CEOs. And... He then returned in 2008 in the midst of the recession to lead Starbucks. And Starbucks growth had stalled, the store sales were plunging, and a big issue around that was that they were worried that they were going to have to lay people off. And he understood how much some people depended on their income from Starbucks. Um, Howard Schultz himself grew up 
incredibly poor. And when his mother lost one of her jobs or she got really sick, she didn't have health insurance. And so he just knew, again, firsthand how important it is to help people keep their jobs. And so this is kind of where the emotional component comes in. He knew that when he returned, people needed to trust that he was personally invested in turning the company around. And so he was. He like couldn't sleep the night before his return. And so when he took the stage to announce that he was coming back and kind of map out his plan for the company, he decided to let some of that emotion that he was feeling out. And he cried in front of his employees. Um, and I think, you know, crying can often seem manipulative, but it's also an expression that you care about something deeply. And we talk about this later in the book too. Um, there's a stigma around crying and especially I think around men crying. Um, but that really worked out for him because people thought, wow, like he, this is his company and he cares a lot and he's coming back and it, it really bonded them to him and allowed them to trust him that he was really, really invested in again, helping them keep their job. So, you know, when you show that kind of emotion, in anything, it clearly means you're passionate about whatever it is you're doing, whether it's a sports team, a faith background, your community, your marriage, your job, Starbucks, whatever. And yet one of your very first rules is be less passionate about your job. <laughs> I love yeah. that rule. So why don't you unpack that for us? Why, why, why would that be one of the rules that we all should grab onto? Yeah. So as we enter, or we're not entering anymore, we just exist in this very digital age, the boundaries between our personal and professional lives are blurring faster and faster. Um, it's a horrible habit, but the first thing I do uh, when I wake up and the last thing I do before I go to sleep is I check my work email. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm trying to stop, but I think that's very common um, among people that, that are working in many jobs. And so with that, because we spend so much time in our jobs, we also want more from our jobs. We're more tied, like our self-worth is more tied up in what we do. Um, we now have more options just because you can log on to like LinkedIn or there's so many ways to search for a job now. So we, we can pick something that we feel really passionate about. And that's great. Like you should love what you do. It's great to be invested and to, and to care and be responsive. But you risk then getting too wrapped up in work. And if you don't carve out enough time for yourself to do things that have nothing to do with your job, and that's, you know, spending time with your family, it's exercising, it's having a side project, it's just doing something that takes you out of the work mentality. So if you care too much about work and only work, you can drive yourself um, right. a little batty. Um, and, I, and I think also you see that manifest in, in burnout and people are overly stressed and that's definitely not healthy then that's not sustainable and it won't help you be productive long-term. So I'm curious, I'm, I'm sure all the uh, executives, managers and leaders listening right now are thinking, great, but how do we remain engaged and passionate and yet also capable of leaving the phone at the desk, capable of, of having jobs outside of our work that we actually love, things that, that elevate us and those that we are caring for. So how do you manage when uh, more and more and more and more is being expected of us with less and less resources to actually get it done? Yeah, so I think the, the biggest thing is just to force yourself to remember that the research shows that after we work 50 or 60 hours a week, we just become less productive because we're, we're not thinking as clearly, we're not able to focus as well. And so it's just so important to keep in mind that people need breaks in order to be the best employees they can. And so it's better to be getting 
like an amazing quality of work out of someone mm-hmm. for seven or eight hours a day than demanding them to be there 11 hours a day. And then, you know, people get tired. Um, there's a lot of research too that shows as the day goes on, like around 4 p.m., our productivity and our focus is at its lowest. And so you don't want people making mistakes that actually then end up creating a lot more work for, for other people. So I think there's a lot of ways we talk in the book too about how to build in short breaks, how to encourage people to take vacations, yeah. um, and how to do that in a way where you know, someone on the team is still covering if there's work that still needs to be done. Well, and one of the cartoons I remember you drawing regarding this was, it was a picture of a woman. I think she's on like a yoga mat. And uh, and then a guy is walking by talking to a friend saying, well, the reason that Liz is able to go to the meditation room is she does this at 3X. Like she's listening yeah. to the med- <laughs> meditation principles at three times the speed she should be. And I think yeah, many of us yeah. are trying to 3X life. We're trying to do so much so rapidly that you can't possibly jam it all in. So then it's about prioritizing yeah. what actually matters. Yeah, and you don't enjoy it anymore. There's also research that shows when we mathematize our experiences. So if you're always tracking how many steps you take yeah. or you're always monitoring your heart rate, you just it's not enjoyable anymore. Uh, so a change that I've made is I like to run and I used to just be really obsessed with, did I run more than yesterday? Have I been running faster than last month? And I just stopped tracking anything. I just put on my shoes, go outside, do what feels good. And then I come back and I just, it's such a better experience for me. This episode is not brought to you by Fitbit. Okay, I need you guys to know that right now. It doesn't mean we don't love them and use them, but not this episode, okay? We're leaving it at home for this one run. You, you, You also quoted, I thought, some really cool research from Harvard. Uh, Killingsworth and Gilbert, two great researchers up there. And and here's what it says, that um, we estimate that people spend less than half of their time actually being present, living in the moment. And of the 5,000 that these two guys studied, uh, they find that those whose minds wander the most, either to the past or to the future, are least happy. Why do you think that is? Yeah. Yeah, I think when our minds wander, we tend to ruminate. Um, And it, again, makes sense for us to think more about the possible threats. Again, from an evolutionary perspective, it was important for us to to model out all of the things that could go wrong and then be prepared for them. But in the modern world, like there's, again, not going to be like a lion charging at you in the office. So when we think about threats, it's just like my email or my phone or all these things that like are... Yeah, it's not like threatening usually. Um, And so our brain can play pretty dirty tricks on us. And rumination is when you start obsessively thinking about your issues and and going over them and over them without ending at any solution. Um, And there are definitely patterns that our brain falls into that are important to be aware of. Well, I mean, let's let's talk about shifting from rumination into life again and into the presence and into our best work and best lives. What 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 are yeah. a couple things that we can do, Liz, that actually allow us to not ruminate anymore on the spilled milk or the traffic or the the potential of something maybe going wrong tomorrow, but actually living focused and present and passionately right now, this moment? Yeah. So first, it's important to identify what these tricks are, because once you realize that you're just falling into a pattern that is universal among humans, I think it's easier to kind of step out of it when you realize this is a normal pattern. And so... Um, we talk about the three P's, which are things we tend to focus on around negative events. And so those are personalization, pervasiveness, and permanence. And so personalization is when you think that the event is all your fault. 
Um, so you have a meeting and maybe the client decides not to go with your team and then you go back and like, oh, it was me. Like I should have done better. I should have whatever. Um, that's a negative pattern. Pervasiveness is thinking that the event is going to ruin every aspect of your life. So because we didn't get this client, our business is going to go under and I'm going to lose my house and I'm going to be homeless. That's, you know, catastrophizing and pervasiveness. Mm -hmm. And then permanence is thinking that you're never going to feel good again. Uh, and I definitely, when I was younger and kind of had read less psychology, I very much fell into this. I would have a bad day and I would feel extra bad because I thought I was never going to feel better. And so there's some really easy tricks to get out of each one of these thinking patterns. And, and so I'm, the first is... Let me just yeah, pause you right there because yeah. if I were listening and not at a large organization, I may think these do not apply to me. But as I read your book... Man, I, I, I'm hoping that middle schoolers and high schoolers check out these three mm. Ps because I'm convinced they apply at the grade school, high school, middle school level. I'm pretty convinced they apply at the university level. And I think they fit into all of us as we journey through life. I mean, we, we, over-personalization, pervasion, and permanence is something that we all are struggling with. So what Liz is about to share, I think, is very relevant to every one of us. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I... We talked about this, too, before we started recording. I think there's so much in this book uh, and when we talk about our emotional lives that applies to work, but also to any situation. So if you have you know, an argument with your partner, I think it's really easy in that case, too, to be like, <clears throat> can we ever get out of this? Um, and yes, usually, you know, if you're if you approach the conversation with kindness, you can. Um, so here's how to not give the three P's a chance. Um, the first one is for personalization. Again, this is thinking that everything is your fault. Just really try and look at the situation more objectively. Usually in any situation, you don't have 100% control of it. And so it's therefore impossible for anything that goes wrong to be all your fault. Um, so really trying to take a more objective stance and not needlessly blame yourself. And then pervasiveness is this idea that this one bad thing is going to ruin your whole life. So there again, it's stopping the thought process. And this for some people is just like, get busy, like move around, do something with your hands, listen to music, maybe watch the show, um, just anything to kind of stop this spiraling. And then the last one for permanence, <clears throat> which is this idea again, that you, this is going to affect you forever. Really important to avoid the words always and never. So if you find yourself thinking like, I'm always going to feel like this, or I never do a good job, that's just not true. Um, life is up and down and, and your skills change and you have absolutely have the power to improve. So instead of saying something like, I'm always messing up, say, hey, I didn't do a great job this time, but that just means I need to study more or gain some new skills or ask for help. And at the next opportunity, I can show that I've improved. Right on. I'm just going to repeat what I heard is uh, the final piece in particular. Avoid the word always and avoid yeah. the word never, in particular when we're being negative around it. Uh, that's a great way to step out of that spiral, that vict victim's spiral loop that's going to take you downward. Yeah. So the advice I have is never say never and, you know, <laughs> always avoid always. <laughs> yeah, there you go. I think there's a bumper sticker or a T-shirt that we can start developing, Liz, you and I together, and we can we can make this baby big. <laughs> Amazing. You also write about how we can't do this all by ourselves, that we need to lean into others. But in leaning in, leaning into others, there are going to be some obvious struggles that we face there too. So having the benefits of doing life with individuals at work and in life. Well, one way that you suggest to uh, 
strengthen those relationships is to prevent siloing. And you wrote about this company that did a tea time, three o'clock tea time. And I don't mean golf yeah, tea time, so. but to talk about the tea time they did and what they found. Yeah. So they did uh, the, the beverage tea time. Um, and that is actually, uh, we've talked to now a bunch of companies that do this where they just have employees from any part of the company gather together and either have a snack or drink tea together. Um, I know IDEO, where my co-author Molly works, uh, it's an organizational design firm. They do something called make-believe time where mm-hmm. they have people, for example, they do all these goofy projects together. So they will finger paint or they will close their eyes and then you have to draw someone's face. You have to draw a portrait of them with your eyes closed and then see what you come up with wow. when you've opened your eyes. And these are all just about again, getting people out of their silos. So it's so often that you only talk to the people in your team or that you talk to the person sitting next to you. And there might be amazing other people at the company um, that you could be friends with. And a lot of research shows that friendship at work motivates us. It gets us through the hard days. It's really nice to have a confidant that you can turn to when you're feeling bad and you just need a little pick-me-up. And again, a work friend is nice because they fully understand the situation usually. They know the colleagues. Um, so it can be, it can feel really cathartic to talk to them. So anything that organizations can do again, to just facilitate random interactions that allow you to talk to more people. Um, I've heard a rumor, I cannot substantiate this, but that at one of the original Apple campuses, Steve Jobs had the bathrooms in the middle of the office so that you couldn't kind of scurry away to your own team's bathroom. You had to like go walk across go to the central place, and then you might bump into a lot of people in that process. Well, that's one way to get it done. There are a lot of yeah. people <laughs> hoping and praying that their uh, their HR manager is not listening right now. We do not need them, the restroom shifted to the middle of the, the workspace. Yeah, yeah. You, not endorsing that, but but again, this idea of like getting people together is important. It is critically important, but it's not easy. You, you wrote, every human being will anger, annoy, mm. mad, and, and disappoint us. And we will without any malice, do the same to them. And then you, you went on to unpack three different ways that we might be able to do this, and we also might receive this annoyance. And you, you kind of framed it as jacks, queens, and kings, the jerks, the dissenters, uh. the slackers. I love the drawing <laughs> you did there. Yeah, well, yeah. When I read that, I, I, not only do we deal with this organizationally or with vendors and clients or whatever it may be, but in community and in our synagogues, mm-hmm. and in our churches, and in our coffee shops, and in our relationships at home with family, around the, around the dining room table from time to time, believe it or not, jerks, dissenters, and slackers. So walk through what those three terms mean to you, and then how do we, uh, how do we love them where they are, but gracefully guide ourselves <laughs> and, them, and then them forward? Yeah, so the jerk is just someone who's mean, who, if you're vulnerable with them, might use that against you. Um, It's just someone who does not make the people around them feel good. Um, A dissenter is someone who I feel like everyone has worked with this person or or interacted with this person in some sense. Uh, Dissenter is the person who always has an opinion and always points out a problem, but never offers a solution. Um, And it's, you know, it's really easy to be a critic. It's much harder to offer a solution. And then the last one, um, which is a slacker, Again, this is just someone who's not doing the job they're supposed to do. And what's interesting about that is I think, you know, to broaden this beyond the workplace, I think people go through periods of slacking too. Um, my partner and I, for example, 
I was really stressed about work and we have like a chore list and he pointed out to me, he's like, you just haven't been doing any of the stuff on this. So, you know, for a week I had been the slacker in the relationship in that sense. Um, and kind of the best way to deal with each of these. So the first is to have empathy. Um, and this doesn't always work, but generally often if this is a person that you know and you like, and let's say that for a period they're being kind of mean to others, or in my case, like I was slacking on the chore list. Um, it's really important to put yourself in their shoes and think like, what happened? Is there something going on in this person's life that might be affecting their behavior, um, that might be making them irritable, that might be making them slack off in this situation? Um, and so sometimes just having a conversation and bringing it up in a polite but way where you're like, mm-hmm. you know, this is happening. It's affecting people around you. Let's talk about it. That can often go a long way. Um one other thing is, you know, with, with jerks in particular, they often are the people that are going to come to you and like vent about everything. And so a specific question we have in that case is if someone's been coming up to you continuously and just complaining and complaining, one thing you can say is, what could you have done differently or what can you do to improve the situation? And it's a really nice way of kind of shutting down the negativity and also moving that person to think more about problem solving. Um, and then I'll give one more uh, that I'm really a fan of, which is one of the companies that I worked at in the case of dissenters is people who always offer criticism but never solutions. We instituted a policy where it was colon suggestion. And you couldn't say anything critical without appending colon suggestion. So, for example, if I wanted to say, um, I just I think that the slideshow is not as effective as it could be. I could not stop there. I would have to say colon. And my suggestion might be, I think instead we need to start with an overarching slide that like lays out all the points right away. So you cannot offer a criticism without offering a solution. I think this should be mandated for uh, our media. It would really change (laughs) what we're watching at nighttime and listening to on our our radio waves. Oh, yeah. Because it's so easy to dissent and to critique and to call out what's wrong and uh, colon here's an opportunity that we have to make it better. Here's the suggestion. Here's how we're going to do it together. I think that would be very yeah. cool, not only nationally, but uh, in our work teams and our families with our partners. Yeah. When you do this, though, you're receiving suggestions that may not be yours. In other words, you're receiving feedback. And as you write, feedback sometimes is a very difficult thing to receive. So my, my first question to you, Liz, is why... Why do we oftentimes feel like we are being attacked when someone provides a little bit of feedback? Yeah, I mean, it, it just hurts. You know, like, I think we all like to have this idea of ourselves that we are thoughtful people who are kind and also very competent. And so if someone says, hey, you said this thing and it hurt me, or hey, you just didn't do that well in this one situation, I think it's completely normal to have the knee-jerk reaction that's very defensive. Um and I think, I think people who are able to receive feedback well are able to move themselves more quickly past that knee-jerk reaction. So, for example, I have come to see feedback as just something that I need to improve. And without it, I'm never going to get promoted or I'm never going to just improve my relationship with my partner or with my friends. Like, I want to know if I'm doing something that's hurting them. I have no intention to do that. So I want to know that it's happening so I can fix it. Even with that mindset, there are moments when I'm yeah. still like, ah, this feels bad. <laughs> Don't tell me that. 
Um, well, I would, I would suggest, Liz, yeah. that you're, you're probably fairly rare. Most of us aren't seeking uh, for individuals to point out how we can do things even better. So on yeah. behalf of, it's not for me, it's for a friend, right? It's when you call on a show and it's, it's not my problem, it's my friend's problem. But for a friend and for a couple other friends listening right now, how do we receive feedback better? How do we, how do we listen without being hurt? And how do we respond so that we can actually make the thing better? Yeah. So you, I think the best way to do it is to kind of create an emotional slack jacket for yourself. And that's a way to receive the feedback without letting it feel like a dagger through your heart. And so again, one thing is just to remind yourself, like you need this to improve. And also in most cases, the person is giving you this feedback because they, they value you and they want to improve your relationship or they want to help you succeed at work. So a great quote, um, my old boss, Tom Lehman, who worked at Genius, he always said that a friend will tell you when you have spinach in your teeth and a non-friend will let you go the whole evening with spinach in your teeth because they just don't want to go through that uncomfortable moment of letting you know about it. Um, So I think it's so important to keep someone's intentions in mind. And then another thing that I've started doing is to keep what we call a smile file. Um, And that can be a folder in your email inbox. It can be a physical folder. It can be a folder on your desktop. And what you do there is every time someone says something nice or compliments you in in, in an email or even just sends you like a text that's really charming or anytime that you receive something that makes you feel good about yourself, you save it to your smile file. And then the next time that someone criticizes you, you go back and you see it as, oh, this is one data point in this entire picture of who I am. And I do all these things well, and that's great. And then it's kind of like, okay, there's one thing I need to work on, but it doesn't feel so devastating. I love it. I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to shift on you just a little bit. We, as you know, when you work with a larger organization, you break into different departments, you break into silos, and it can, if we're not super intentional about it, take on kind of a us versus them mentality. That's in mm. corporate America and really around the world. And it's not only true in business, it's true in synagogues and in churches and in hospitals and in education and families and certainly culturally, us versus them. Uh-huh. And so I'm I'm curious, as a team, whether that's within a large organization, small team, family unit, how do we find common ground with differences in style when there's differences within gender and race and political background, upbringing, our values, our priorities – how do we begin rowing forward together? Not us and them, but we. Yeah. So I think the first is just an understanding that people as individuals, no matter, you know, again, what your gender background, anything are, we are different. And, and so an awareness of that, and then out of that born like a curiosity to explore those differences without judgment. So something we encourage teams to do is to, at the very beginning of a meeting um, or a project, take half an hour and have everyone answer the questions. What do people misunderstand about me sometimes? How do I like to receive feedback? What's the best way to work with me? And just answering those questions and having an honest discussion about your communication preferences, about your personality, um, avoids so much conflict. Because, you know, if someone is barraging me with really short emails, Mm -hmm. I could see that as, 
oh, they're attacking me and they're really rude. Or I could understand that like, oh, maybe they're just from a culture where this is the norm. And then it's just, I'm just not going to take it as personally. Um, well, and and let, then I would also, let me, let me stop okay. you there just so I could, my yeah. friends listening can hear this. It's awesome. You brought up those questions because we had a team meeting way back in December. I think it was December 19th. And it was actually those questions that we leveraged during our lunch so that we could share a little bit more vulnerably, vulnerably about who we were and what set us off and what turned us on and, and how best to work with us. And this is a team that's been working together really well for a long time, but, but we'd never really unpacked those questions. And so uh, what you're bringing up right here spoke to me so clearly that I wrote them down and, and uh, we, we actually took action on them. It brought us together. That's amazing. I love that story. Was there anything that surprised you about the people that you had been working with for so long? Well, what, what's surprising is you think you know someone. I, I've worked with one lady for 11 years and, you know, Deanna, she's listening right now. And sometimes the very things that you think you're doing that are elevating them can be the very things that actually irritate them. It's one of the, one of the quirks that we have. Uh, and, and unless you're in a safe space where you can call that out, you know, this isn't the example, but uh, imagine that you give your, your partner flowers when the reality is uh, they want a back rub. And, and you're giving them, in some regards, the exact opposite of what it is they're actually seeking. So you you gave us permission to discern what our love languages were and how to actually uh, meet them where they are. It was really helpful. Oh, that's that's so wonderful to hear. That warms my heart. Um, that's lovely. Uh, I, I, I think it speaks, too, to another piece of advice we, ha- we have, which is kind of just this idea of sharing stories. And those stories can be about who you are, what your preferences are. Um, but a question that we really encourage people to ask each other is, what was your favorite meal growing up? And I really like this because it's very equitable. Everyone has to eat. So probably everyone has some kind of food that comes to mind. And you usually people don't just say like spaghetti or pizza. They say, so in my case, my grandma used to make this cake and there was an ingredient in it that you could only get in Denmark. And so in the U.S., like I just never had this cake here. And then when my grandma died seven years ago, I hadn't had that cake in seven years. And for my birthday last year, my mom specially ordered the ingredient and then made me this cake. And so in answering this question, you've now learned about my family's history. You've learned about my relationship with my mom. And it's just such a like everyone has a story around their favorite meal. So I think really thinking about sharing stories around things that are just culturally universal, which is like eating, music, celebration, family. Well, it's awesome. And it leads to kind of where you're guiding the readers, which is to go from divisiveness to integration, ultimately into belonging. It's a word that kept mm. popping off the page as I, as I journey through your little book. What does belonging mean to you? Yeah, so I think belonging is really when you feel not only that you are at the table, but that people are listening to you and they care about what you have to say and that you are very much welcomed and wanted in the conversation. I understand why that matters to an individual. Tell me why that matters to an organization. Why, why should we strive, whether that organization's a family of five or uh, 30,000 employees? Why, why do we want each individual to feel as if they belong? Yeah, so I think it's it's pretty established now that the key to innovation or creativity is just to have a bunch of different ideas all kind of come together in this magical way. And the way to have different ideas come together is to have different people in the room who feel safe sharing what makes them unique. 
So let's say that I bring in a team of the best experts from the top five fields in the world, and I put them in the in a room. If I don't create a space in which they each have a chance to talk about their experience and their expertise, I don't know why I brought them in the room. Like it, it's totally worthless for me to just stand there and pontificate. Um, so you want people to feel belonging so that they can talk about, you know, an experience growing up or talk about how, you know, a project or a product makes them feel. And, and that's really important as you bring things out into the larger world that you have all these different opinions. And so again, you have to encourage people. And, and part of that is creating a space in which they feel again, safe sharing ideas. I love again, the example that you gave about your team talking through your differences and your love languages, and you have to feel safe doing that. And once you can, and once you're able to talk about all these things, you're not only able to work together better, but the end result is just much more magical and special. Right on. And Liz Fossling, we have two questions before we shift into what we call the live inspired seven. So my second to last question is you wrote a lot of, of course, about emotions and we, we haven't even touched on it yet amazing about a whole book and and part on emotion. (laughs) And yet I've ignored it until right now. I I don't want to go through all the emotions you call out. One of them was sadness. You know, some Mm -hmm. of these are very healthy emotions. Some of them are uh, are greater challenges that we all deal with. But sadness is one I think we all deal with from time to time. Uh, I don't think you need to explain why we receive it, why we feel it, but how can it negatively affect how we show up, if you don't mind? And then secondly, how do we counteract sadness? Yeah, so sadness affects us because we just tend to see everything as, as a, we paint a more depressing picture of the world than the one that is actually true. And I definitely, on days when I feel blue, I feel less hopeful. Um, I'm kind of less likely to trust other people. I think I'm just more cynical in general, and that seems to be a pretty universal trend. Uh, and I'm imagining people listening have all had days like that. And so one of the best ways to counteract sadness is to express gratitude. And a lot of people now are doing gratitude journals where before you sleep or right when you wake up, you write down three things that happened that day that you're grateful for or three people that you're grateful for. And one of the things we write in the book um, that I actually did last week so I can attest to how useful this is, is if there's someone in your life that has done a lot for you and that you've never really taken the time to personally thank, if you handwrite them a letter thanking them for what they've done and then deliver it to them, that has such a boost mm. on happiness. They did a study on this. And, and I think it's one of those things where it's like, yes, I don't need research to back this up. That just makes so much sense to me. So I think just like taking the time to be grateful and then also expressing that to other people. I think we don't enough in life share how much the people we love mean to us. So I'm, I'm going to play off that just for a moment. One of the great leaders in my life was a guy named Jack Buck, this great broadcaster mm-hmm. for the St. Louis Cardinals who came into my life at a very dark time and then held on to me tightly for the next 15 years or so until he passed. And during that entire time, back to your original point, I never really said thank you. Not not in the effective way, not in the way that he would have heard it outside of my smile and joy and laughter and you know hugs. I never wrote a long love letter. And then I lost my friend, Jack Buck. And those of you who've heard me speak live, you've heard part of the story, but I, I never had the opportunity to say thank you, which is really painful to, to, um, to not have that chance. And now it's, it's passed. So what I did is I wrote Jack a long, long love letter. 
And I thanked him for being the friend that uh, he was, as undeserving as I was, and walked through all the various things that he did for me during our years of friendship. And then I called his son, Joe Buck, who's an announcer himself. And I took him out to coffee at Starbucks, by the way. And uh, I sat across from Joe and I read him this love letter to his dad. And although I wasn't able to share it with Jack live, I'm pretty convinced that Jack heard it. And I know that Joe heard it. And I saw the emotion in his eyes and I still feel it today. You know, that's been 15 years. I still feel the emotion of joy and knowing that my friend Jack and his son, Joe, finally received that thank you letter. So for those of you listening right now to Liz's advice, man, I'm begging you to, uh, when you when you finish this podcast, to hit pause before it rolls into the next one, discern that one name and write them a love letter and then be bold enough to deliver it. It will not only change your life, it's going to change theirs too. That's yeah. I, it's actually I was rewatching the MLB did a video on you and this experience, and it was actually that video that made me think. Okay, I finally need to actually just sit down and write this letter that I've been planning. So it def, it definitely affected me. I think it's an amazing story. Well, that's awesome, and uh, thank you for watching that. And my my final question to you, Liz, before we uh, before we talk about the Live Inspired Seven, is you wrote this beautiful book. You drew a hundred and 60 plus photos and pictures that go inside of this book. It's a lot of work. It's a labor of love. When a reader gets to the end of it, what do you hope they receive? How how do you hope they're different or better or uh, elevated? Yeah, I think the biggest thing is just being kinder to yourself. Um, As someone who went through a large part of her life kind of trying to beat any emotional urge or instinct out of herself, um, I think there's just so much about just having the permission to say, I'm, I'm a little sad today and that's okay. It doesn't define me as a human being. I'm going to be happy again. Um, I'm kind of just going to keep going about my day and I'm going to treat myself with the same kindness that I'm probably showing the people around me that I love. That's well said. And the book is called No Hard Feelings. It's emotions at work and how they help us succeed. Liz, the book is coming out very soon. How can we learn a little bit more about it today? Yeah, so you can visit lizandmolly.com, which is the book's website, and Molly is M-O-L-L-I-E. Or you can pre-order the book on Amazon, Barnes & Nobles, kind of your local independent books, bookseller, anywhere books are sold. All right, so let, let's uh, let's check out that book, and let's also, you and I, dance through the Live Inspired 7. Question number one of Liz Fosling is, Liz, besides No Hard Feelings, what is the best book you've ever read? I really love Catch-22 by Joseph Heller. Um, I think every sentence inverts on itself, and it's just a delightful read. Wow. Awesome. What's one positive characteristic, one trait that you possessed as a little child that you wish you exhibited as brightly today? Being a little weird. (laughs) I think most of us, as we grow up, we kind of morph into professionals or into parents setting examples. And I think it's really important sometimes to just like really just dance like a goofball, run around when it's pouring outside. Um, Just like love the life you're living. Perfect. If your home caught fire and your partner and all living things, animals are already out and you have an opportunity to run in and grab one item, what would you grab? Oh, (laughs) I'm blanking because there's so many. Uh, I think my partner made a book featuring photographs from our lives last year, so I would grab that as a memory. Perfect. If you could sit on a bench overlooking a beach and have a long conversation with anyone living or dead, 
who would you want to have seated next to you on that bench? The author, Haruki Murakami, who wrote What I Talk About When I Talk About Running, and he addresses a lot around being an introvert and mm. just what it means to be human. By the way, for being an introvert, you are, <laughs> you're a gift to speak to. It's really been a blast. What's the best advice that you've ever received? So when I left the more traditional corporate world to take the motive a risk and start illustrating and embark on this book journey, I emailed a friend who had done something similar because I was feeling really adrift. And she wrote back and wrote, one of the worst things we do is have the courage to step out and go on our own path, but still judge ourselves by someone else's rubric every day. Hmm. And just always remember, it's a beautiful thing to want something that originates from yourself. Wow. What would you tell your 20-year-old self? Just chill out. (laughs) It's okay. You can be weird. The right people are going to love you for it. Uh, There's more to the world than like being a banker or a lawyer. It's going to be fine. Just be smart, be curious, be kind. It'll all work out. Well, you know, Liz, I have a sister who lives in Austin. And when you are in Austin, Texas, you see bumper stickers and T-shirts and beer mugs and just about everything else that says, keep Austin weird. So I think when you have, <laughs> yeah. when you finished up all the great work you need to do in the Bay Area, I know where you ought to be moving next. I love Austin. I thought about moving there. It seems like a wonderful, weird city. Uh, so we'll stay <laughs> weird, Austin, and uh, stay classy, San Diego. My final question to you, Ms. Liz, is it has been said that all great people and authors and illustrators and leaders in life can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How would you like your one sentence to read? helped me feel better. Liz Fossling, you have indeed helped us feel better. We have decided now, I think, to hand deliver love letters tonight before bedtime to those who have impacted us. And uh, I'm going to start a smile file. We, we at our little oh, office great. get an awful lot of notes and gratitude and love. And, um, and then we move on. I'm going to start a whole file that just celebrates these smiles. And I will be thinking of you when I look back at it. So thank you for encouraging me to do that. Yes. Thank you for having me on. And again, for being the prompt for me to finally write my thank you letter last week. You know, the, we, we have done more than 100 of these podcasts. And out of all of those, from the feedback that I've received from the guests themselves, to know that that video that Major League Baseball did influenced you and inspired you enough to do that, that is Awesome. So thank you for sharing that, my friends. You've just been listening to the voice and the wisdom of Liz Fossling. She's got a great book out right now called No Hard Feelings, Emotions at Work and How They Can Help Us Succeed. You can learn more about that at the site she mentioned. We'll have links to all of that at our own website at johnolearyinspires.com. Again, johnolearyinspires.com. So for this time, And until next time, that is Liz Fosling. This is John O'Leary. And today is your day. Live inspired. All right, my friends. Something cool that is happening more frequently going forward is that as I prepare to share my story on stages, I'm not known to that audience as a speaker. And I'm not known usually to that audience as an author. Instead, a whole lot of the ladies and gentlemen in the room are already following me and our work through the Live Inspired podcast. They're listening, in other words, to this voice right now through their own channels. Very cool. We've had more than a million downloads, as you know. It's a top 20 iTunes show, as you may know, which is very cool. 
But it also means that a whole lot of ladies and gentlemen are unaware of my number one national best-selling book. It's where I encapsulate, in so many regards, the best of our story. It's called On Fire. It's a worthy read. It's been celebrated by Brene Brown and Dave Ramsey, Joe Buck, a whole lot of other luminaries who have talked about the impact of this book in their lives. It also has received more than 1,500 five-star reviews online that has very little to do with this guy's voice or the man who wrote it and everything to do with the reader, with the impact in the reader's life and ultimately what it does for us professionally, what it does for us relationally, spiritually, relationally, and in every aspect of our life that actually matters. It's called On Fire. It is available. But rather than sending you to your nearby bookstore today, what I'm encouraging you to do right now is to let your fingers do the walk and come on over to John O'Leary inspires.com forward slash free. This is a gift. I want you to be able to check out the first two chapters of on fire. So come on over to visit me right now at John O'Leary inspires.com forward slash free.